0: Lord, you're big and you love us, and that makes us glad. Now let the words that I say and let the thoughts we all think be pleasing in your sight. For Jesus' sake, amen. One of the most fascinating phenomena during the height of COVID a few years back was what it did to the slogan, my body, my choice. You remember that slogan had become pretty much a self-evident truth in our society, right? almost universally accepted. What could be more obviously right? And good, than the claim that adults should be able to do what they want with their own bodies. Then, some people who were asked to put N95s on against their will co opted the phrase, right? And then chaos kind of broke loose. Um, Different people using the same words in different ways, right? We started to see cell phone videos of unmasked individuals yelling at target employees, my body, my choice, don't make me put that mask on, right? To which critics on the other side responded, yep, but when your choice endangers other people's bodies, you forfeit the right to make that choice. To which some of these folks over here then said, let me get this straight. So if my choice about my body endangers another body, that should no longer just be my choice. And as that argument was exposing both sides for their hypocrisy and being willing to use that slogan, when convenient, but discard it when inconvenient, it had to raise the question for at least some who were paying attention, uh, wait, who's actually right? Is my body, my choice correct? Or should we be willing to submit our choices about our bodies to some authority outside ourselves? Now, this one touches a nerve, right? So there's quite possibly no more deeply held doctrine in our world than I am my own person. Most of us learned it young. In songs, and movies, and magazines, you do you. And especially with our bodies, right? Most of us instinctively experience anger. Maybe even in your body you feel anger when you hear about somebody attempting to dictate what happens to another person's body. We feel deeply that that is wrong. The government better not tell me what I have to do with my body. My spouse better not tell me what I have to do with my body. Nobody better tell me what I have to do with my body. My body belongs to me. And as such, what I do with this body is my choice. But what if our bodies don't belong to us? Would you turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 6? 1 Corinthians chapter 6, starting with verse 9. In this sermon series, we're working through a letter the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in a Greek city called Corinth a couple decades after Jesus' resurrection. Among other issues, this church has slipped into patterns of unhealthy relationships, which Paul has been correcting in this letter. Unhealthy relationships with others in the church, with church leaders, with those in the church who are not living in line with the way of Christ. Where we left off in this letter last week, Paul has just called out a dude who is sleeping with his dad's wife. Actually, that's not true. Paul has just called out the church for tolerating a dude who is sleeping with his dad's wife. And on top of that, he's called out church members for suing each other in secular courts. Right and In today's text, Paul's going to circle back to more issues relating to sex, including that church members are having sex with prostitutes without thinking anything of it. Um, so I wonder if you'll feel the way I do when I hear this passage read, namely that it's eerie how similar the thinking of the Corinthian Christians is to our thinking today, despite the fact that we're living 2,000 years later on the other side of the world. Uh, and as Paul relates their thinking, he, there are three main parts to his response. We'll take those each in turn. The first one is the transformation of the sinner's identity, in verses 9 through 11. Follow along with me as I read 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 through 11. Don't you know, Paul says, that the unrighteous will not inherit God's kingdom? Do not be deceived, no sexually immoral people, idolaters, adulterers, or males who have sex with males, no thieves, greedy people, drunkards, verbally abusive people, or swindlers will inherit God's kingdom. And some of you used to be like this, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. If all Christians have a B.C. story, What our lives were like before Christ? The Corinthians had some pretty wild B.C. stories to tell. Corinth was known around the world for sexual looseness. It was a port city with everything that went along with that. We've actually found a term for it in the literature of the time. To Corinthianize meant what you might imagine it meant. And so this young church is made up of people who have become Christians somewhere along the way. But who grew up with a pretty wide open approach to sex. And now, some of them are struggling to adjust to the new reality of their life in Christ. And part of what Paul's doing here is saying, hey, this isn't just a minor issue, right? This is life and death. Quite literally, inheritance in God's kingdom is on the line. And these 10 behaviors that I'm about to list jeopardize that inheritance. And we'll look at that list in a moment. But did you catch how he adds emphasis with these two prompts? He says, don't you know and do not be deceived. Those are both repeated phrases Paul uses when he wants to emphasize something, and they're here because it's so easy for us even to be deceived on this. To imagine that living this way is no big deal and it will carry no long-term consequences. Now, clarification. Do we all sin? Yes, absolutely. Is there any sin on this list that we're about to look at that a Christian is above committing? No, right? Any of us. slip into any of these but paul's saying don't be lulled into thinking that this is okay nobody who persistently lives in these ways as a lifestyle such that they are characterized by any of the items on this list zero of those people will end up with an inheritance in god's kingdom in other words if any of these is characteristic of our lives even this morning we need to turn, or else we won't have any any inheritance in the kingdom, because we won't fit through the Jesus-shaped gate at the only entry point, right? So let's, let's dig into this list a little bit, though, so we get it. So if you remember last week, in chapter 5, verse 11, Paul said, I wrote to you not to associate with anyone, and he gives this list, who claims to be a brother or sister and is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or verbally abusive, a drunkard or a swindler. Now, Paul starts with that same list of six, but he adds four more sexual ones, because The emphasis on this chapter is on sexuality. So here it is. These are patterns of life that aren't compatible with entering God's kingdom. We'll just kind of take them in order here. So first, sexually immoral people. This one's broad. It's pornoi in Greek, which is where we get our root porn. Uh, Elsewhere, we can find all sorts of sexual expressions getting categorized under pornoi, this term, including what used to be called in some circles fornication old-fashioned word which is sex with someone that you're not yet married to I know a pastor who in his premarital counseling now he has stopped asking Christian engaged couples whether they're living together because he realized in his words that he was getting lied to so much now he's convinced it's just the norm for Christian couples to live together before marriage and he just assumes by default that Christian couples are right meanwhile here's Paul right no one who, as a settled pattern of life, sleeps with his girlfriend before marriage, will inherit God's kingdom. Neither will idolaters. Idolaters, they relate to someone or something in such a way that a human's only meant to relate to God, put something in God's place where only God should be. Adulterers, this is a subset of that earlier term, pornoi, That specifically refers to a married person engaging in sexual activity with someone who's not their spouse, right? That one's still not super controversial in our day. Most people don't think it's okay to cheat on a spouse. This one's much more controversial, though. Males who have sex with males, right? You may have a different translation. This is the CSB's attempt to use one term to translate what are two Greek terms in the passage. It would have been understood as referring to what we might call the active and passive partners in a sexual relationship between two males. Um, So the CSB translators chose to combine the two words in the one phrase, males who have sex with males, if that makes sense. A helpful aspect of this translation is that it clarifies, hey, this doesn't refer to what attractions someone might have, whether they're attracted to the same sex. This has everything to do with how someone acts on their attractions. And that's extremely significant because there was a time in recent history in which this idea got invented in our world called sexual orientation, as though people have these fixed identities, right? Some are exclusively oriented toward the same sex. They started being called homosexuals. Some are exclusively oriented toward the opposite sex. They started being called heterosexuals. And it seems some are oriented in both ways. They started being called bisexuals. Nobody was thinking along those lines in Paul's day, though. There was no such thing as the word heterosexual until the 1860s. Paul's living in a world in which it's assumed that everybody might experience a range of attractions. The question philosophers were debating at this time is, which attractions are appropriate to act on? And in a place like Corinth, for men to have sexual outlets on the side was accepted, it was even assumed. Some of those outlets might be female prostitutes, no shame in that at the time. Uh, others might be fellow males. No judgment in that either. Orientation, though, had nothing to do with it, right? Not a category. But unfortunately, when orientation was invented 150 years ago in 1860s, Christians in the West jumped on board and talked in terms of sexual orientation as though Christians should take pride in being strictly heterosexual. And of course, now, that creates an unnecessary problem for, say, The young man who finds himself sometimes curious about other men. Or the young woman who finds another woman very attractive. Now that young person's mind starts racing with a whole set of questions that that a person never would have asked in Paul's day. Like, does this mean I'm gay? In Paul's Corinth, it would have been like, of course everybody's going to find a variety of people attractive. What's the big deal? See the difference? And it's so tragic that the church bought this sub-biblical And now increasingly discredited idea of orientation because, for one thing, it has caused a ton of unnecessary hurt. The narrative, and in some cases, this is a fair criticism of the church, has become, hey, Christians don't just Christians don't just have a problem with my behavior, they hate who I am. They condemn me for aspects of my core identity that are out of my control. We don't want to be those sorts of people. That's awful, right? But it's doubly tragic because that's never what Paul meant and it's just not true, right? It was never true. Even now to today, even the most progressive secular scholars on sexuality are acknowledging orientation is not fixed over time. That, that many people report shifts in their orientation or their attractions over the course of their lives. If you look up uh, the name Lisa Diamond as one example, sociologist really well known, I think she's at Stanford, her studies are clear, many of us should expect and not be threatened by the fact that over various seasons of our lives, we may find ourselves attracted pretty heavily toward the opposite sex. And another season toward one or more individuals of the same sex. It's a spectrum. So for Paul and for any number of faithful Christians today who experience significant attraction to people of the same sex, it's, it's yeah, I mean, heterosexual people are attracted to people who aren't their spouses. I may be attracted to some members of my same sex. Okay, no matter who I'm attracted to, that's not the question. The question is, Which attractions are appropriate to cultivate and to act on? And from the beginning, Old Testament and New, same-sex attractions have not been appropriate for God's people to act on. Because the Bible's teaching is that sex was created as an expression of mutual enjoyment across difference in the context of a covenant, such that it serves as a metaphor hinting at the relationship between Christ and his church. More on that in a moment. Let's finish this list, though. Thieves, including those who take things in secret. Greedy people, those for whom what I presently have is never enough. Drunkards, the Bible uh, doesn't condemn all alcohol consumption. Jesus drank wine. But if we're drunk, we're in sin, according to both the Old and New Testaments. And if we regularly get drunk as a settled pattern, we shouldn't expect to inherit the kingdom. Verbally abusive people, no matter what has come to be thought of as normal in some marriages or some workplaces, using our words to denigrate others made in the image of God has no place in God's kingdom. And swindlers who forcibly steal from others, they won't inherit. So that's the list. Now, for some of us, a list like this brings up memories of street preachers on our college campuses holding up signs that says, God hates And then a list that kind of looked a lot like this. And so we're like, come on, Paul. Lighten up. This isn't the heart of Christ. But while I don't think Paul would have been one of those street preachers with flames on his poster board shouting at people with a megaphone. And while Paul doesn't say God hates those people, he isn't interested in lightening up about this. He loves the recipients of this letter too much. He knows this isn't a, hey, you'll get a bigger mansion in heaven if you don't do these things type of issue. This is a, you won't be permitted entry if you do these things kind of issue. How can that be, though? Like, hasn't hasn't North Suburban Church taught that entry to the kingdom is predicated solely on God's grace received by faith, not by what we do? I hope that if you're here for any length of time... We'll answer that question with a resounding yes. Grace alone saves. Not any good that any of us could do, right? But while grace alone saves, we've said it many times, the grace that saves is never alone. If the grace of God has been truly received by an individual, it will always result in life transformation, Not perfection. True Christians can and do mess up really bad. But when sin is characteristic of us as a lifestyle, as a defining feature of life that we have comfortably settled into. That's evidence that we may never have received that grace through faith in the first place. That maybe we haven't actually trusted in Christ like we thought we had. We're still actually trusting ourselves, calling our own shots. Now, I imagine some might have a problem with what we've just read that sits a step back from all that we've said so far. Namely, why does the Apostle Paul get to talk like this why does even God why why should anybody outside myself dictate my sexual expression and that's such an important question it's going to be answered later in this in this text so hang with us till we get there in a few minutes but for now check this out the point of these verses that we've read is not gloom and doom Um, it's 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 not gay bashing it's not anybody bashing right look at this glorious sentence some of you used to be like this In the Corinthian church, in other words, are people who used to steal, who used to get drunk, who used to use other people's bodies to relieve their sexual urges the way you use a toilet to relieve your urge to urinate. This is who they used to be. These practices defined them before they met Jesus, not now. Now they've been washed. Now they've been sanctified. Now they've been justified. That language there sounds a lot like baptism. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, right? And this is what we celebrate when somebody gets baptized, right down here in this tank right here. And they get up to tell their story. They say, hey, here's who I was, but I've been washed. The old is gone, the new has come. And so Paul's fundamental argument in this section is like, hey, Corinthians, the truest thing about your identity is that you are a washed group of people, a bunch of sanctified saints justified. It means you're, you've been cleared of all wrongdoing in, 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 before God. And given that's who you now are, why again are you going back to living the way you used to live back before you were transformed? Be who you already are. Let your life align with what God already says about you. So question, as we zoom out again on this list uh, up here, do any of these describe us? Not saying, did you mess up in any of these ways this week? That's not what I'm asking. Right? More like, hey, if you're thinking of your life as a stream of water, is the current of your life moving consistently in any of these directions? If so, you're in good company. The rest of us see our former selves on that list too. All over it. But no matter what patterns may characterize your life today, There's another way available. The river can change course. There's a fullness of humanity and joy and flourishing out there for you to experience in Christ. And none of us are too far gone. God's grace is way bigger than even all of our most egregious sin. If you haven't ever experienced being washed from those sins, that can happen today. You just ask him to do it. Lord, wash me. Make me holy. Clear my record of guilt and let me inherit a place in your kingdom. I want that inheritance. And he'll do it. And he'll change your heart in such a way that not only do you have a new relationship with him in a positive sense, you have a new relationship toward your old sin. It doesn't have the hold on you that it used to have. Anybody experience that? Amen. Second, clarification of the body's purpose. It's going to be a little longer sermon. Sorry. We've got some things to clarify and nuance today. Um, We get some insights here in these verses into some of the arguments the Corinthians were willing to make to justify their choices. That's why you'll see in in most translations, you'll see parts of this next section in quotes. Those are the parts that the Corinthians were saying. So follow along with me as I read verses 12 to 17. Everything is permissible for me, the Corinthians say. Paul says back, but not everything's beneficial. Everything is permissible for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Food is for the stomach and the stomach for food. And God will do away with both of them. However, the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. God raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Don't you know that your bodies are a part of Christ's body? So should I take a part of Christ's body and make it part of a prostitute? Absolutely not. Don't you know that anyone joined to a prostitute is one body with her? For scripture says the two will become one flesh but anyone joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. So it seems that one argument the Corinthians are making is this one. Everything is permissible for me. Paul doesn't respond with a theological argument refuting that. Probably because there's a sense in which it's true. Right? We're not under the law in the way that God's people were under the law before Christ. Yet Paul does correct the slogan by pointing out here hey the standard for a christian isn't how much am i able to get away with without consequence rather there are at least two factors that ought to give shape to our very real freedom in christ one that not everything is beneficial so i need to ask myself what is beneficial anything short of that misses the mark which is why the dating couple asking how far is too far is asking the wrong question the better question is, how God-honoring can this dating relationship be? It's not, how close can we get to the edge of the cliff before we fall off? But rather, how much good can we do for God's glory? And then there's another good question to ask besides what's beneficial. Well, what could potentially take mastery over you? Right? Sure, it might be permissible, but the Christian is to be mastered only by Christ. All rival masters are off-limits. So as soon as I'm mastered by anything, even if it's a good thing, to where it starts making demands of me and now I'm taking orders from it, now I'm in slavery again. And no matter how much I try to justify my actions by saying, hey, there's freedom in Christ so I can live how I want. If, if my so-called freedom is putting me back in chains to the very things that Christ freed me from in the first place, I've got the wrong idea of freedom. So that's Paul's response to everything is permissible for me, but there's a second argument the Corinthians seem to be making, and it's this. Food is for the stomach and the stomach for food. It's not too hard to imagine a group of guys sitting around in Corinth. Locker room talk. One of them quips, hey, food for the stomach and the stomach for food. They all laugh because they know this wasn't a comment about food. It's about sex organs, in other words. Food for the stomach and the stomach for food implies sex for sex organs and sex organs for sex, right? Like, why do I have the body parts I have if I'm not supposed to use them, is what's being said with food is for the stomach and the stomach for food. Does that make sense? And that's why after Paul cites their slogan, food is for the stomach and the stomach for food, he has to clarify, hey, the implication of your slogan is all wrong. You're implying that the body is for sexual immorality, but that's not what the body is for. A better ending to your slogan, Paul might say, would be, hey, food for the stomach and the stomach for food, the body for the Lord and the Lord for the body. So the body's purpose, in other words, isn't ultimately to experience maximal sensory pleasure. The body's purpose is to give glory to the Lord. And it's hard to overstate how countercultural Paul's words would have been in, in Corinth. I mean, maybe you sometimes imagine, oh, it's just an older day, like they were prude. They weren't prude, right? In the world of Greek philosophy... There's so many differences. The body was nothing, for one thing. A temporary annoyance is how the body was thought of, as a shell housing what really matters within. Bodies were necessary evils, right? And now along comes Paul implying that there's dignity in the body, that the body matters to the Lord. And yes, it does, in part because it's going to last forever, according to verse 14, which also would have blown the Corinthians' minds, by the way, right? That God raised up the Lord. Do you know Jesus presently has a human body? At the right hand of the father in heaven like on that first christmas he became something he had never been before human but he did so eternally he's still human and always will be which assigns tremendous value to our human bodies right but it's not just jesus god will raise us up by his power in other words as much as we might imagine that there's no eternal significance to what we do with these old sacks of bones God doesn't see our bodies as worthless shells destined for the refuse heap. He's getting ready to raise these bodies up from the dead so we can relate to him forever in these physical bodies. Remade, but with continuity too. So if if God himself has made eternal plans for our bodies, why would we spend these years on earth degrading what he has so tenderly cared for? No, God doesn't just care about what we do with our bodies because he's got some arbitrary obsession with controlling us. That's not it. He designed our bodies and knows what will make us most fully human. Namely, for our bodies to take their parts as, place of, as part of Christ's body. Verse 15, don't you know that your bodies are a part of Christ's body? So the thought process then is what's good to do with Christ's body? Right? Not unite with a prostitute, verses 15 and 16. That's not fitting for Christ's body, Paul says. And so it's not fitting for us as parts of Christ's body. You become one flesh with someone when you have sex with them. And that's meant to point to our spiritual joining with the Lord, Paul says. So why make Christ's body enter into that deep sort of union with a prostitute? That sort of union runs contrary to our new identity in Christ. So listen, the, the picture's starting to maybe come into focus here regarding why God cares who we sleep with. Our world has distorted that picture by convincing us that sex is this deeply individual, personal choice. But think about it for a second. Sex is only individual and personal. If it's first and foremost self-serving. Right? If it's something I use for personal pleasure or power. Right? Meanwhile, what we're seeing here is that sex is meant to be a deep and mystical and beautiful joining. It's a self-giving in the context of whole life oneness, not just bodily oneness, right? And that's richer than what we've reduced it to in our world, which is a crashing together of bodies that stimulates nerve endings and fires endorphins, right? Our, our world's approach significantly cheapens sex, but it also changes how we relate to one another, right? Like if sex is purely for pleasure and not for any kind of deeper joining, then the partners will always remain objects for each other's use. My girlfriend or boyfriend or spouse or a prostitute or a porn star then serves the purpose for me that food serves for a hungry person. I have an urge. There's food here for me to consume. What's more natural than that? How dare anyone tell me I'm wrong to consume it? That's what our modern hookup culture is at its core, right? But it's left a couple generations now disillusioned with sex. Young people are having less sex now than any decade in recent history. I don't know if you've seen the flurry of articles by discouraged women in all the major publications saying, hey, our liberated hookup culture isn't working for us. Why? Part of it has to be this, that our world has told us to pursue sex purely for enjoyment, but then when we do, we sense deep in our souls, it doesn't feel great to be an object who somebody else uses to relieve their urges. Those are the only sorts of sexual arrangements that exist outside of a lifelong covenant. But they leave us like, is this it? Isn't there more? But in Christ we can say, yes, there is more. The body is for the Lord, and so I will be maximally fulfilled when I use my body in ways that line up with how the Lord says I should use my body. Finally, third section, ramifications of the Christian's immorality. Verses 18 to 20. What we have here in these last few verses follows naturally from what we've already seen. Follow along with me as I read... Verses 18 to 20. Flee sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the person who is sexually immoral sins against his own body. Don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought at a price. So glorify God with your body. My mind was blown in my mid-20s. When I heard a preacher point out the contrast that according to scripture if we find ourselves face to face with the devil himself one day the bible tells us what to do stand firm resist the devil and he will flee from you but when we find ourselves face to face with sexual temptation what are we called to do now we're the ones called to run away flee sexual immorality verse 18 right is that what you do you personally when drawn toward using your body in a way that doesn't honor the lord do you flee do you urgently scramble to get out of there at all costs because that's what we're called to these bodies of ours are temples after all verse 19 temples have always been places where god and humanity meet because god is living there and, of course, that's what happens when we give our lives to Jesus. God takes up residence inside of us in the person of his Holy Spirit, and that's permanent. There's no asking God to hop out for a few hours while we visit a prostitute. That would be to join God's home to that person. See why sexual sin is bigger than just sexual sin? God's not this prude who's throwing out arbitrary rules so he can feel like he controls us. Because God lives In our bodies, our sexuality isn't its own compartment of our existence anymore. What we do with our bodies necessarily touches every other aspect of our lives. And as much as we may try to keep our sexuality over here as one isolated part of our existence, cordoned off from everything else, we know it's not, right? And we know it's not because when people are wronged sexually, does that affect just one part of their lives? Of course not. The whole person is deeply impacted. And as Christians, we know why that is. Because sex is meant to mean something, meant to be a profound mystery that somehow forms one flesh where there was two. I like how N.T. Wright summarizes the implication. He says, there is no such thing as a casual sexual encounter. What you do sexually, you do with your whole self, not with one little bit of you. What you are and as you do as a Christian, on the flip side, you are and do as your whole self, not just with the spiritual part of you. I think that's wrapped up in what Paul means here when he says in verse 18, every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the person who is sexually immoral sins against his own body. Sex is meant to make us feel interwoven with someone because it's meant to be a giving of our whole selves to them. But then think about the flip side. This is Sam Alberry. He's one of many same-sex attracted Christians who have chosen celibacy and submission to Christ. Uh, He says, if this is the case that sex is fundamentally about giving and about giving our whole self to someone, then having sex with someone without the intention of giving them this, like our whole self, is actually a form of taking. It's theft. Friends, sex is God's idea. And he endowed it with significance, independently of whether you and I acknowledge that significance or not. He knows what way of living will make us most fully human, because he designed us. And that gives him a claim on us, but his designing of us isn't the only thing that gives him a claim on us, right? He also bought us with a price. When we were enslaved to sin, enslaved to our own desires, he went to the slave market and paid to set us free by buying us for his own. And what was the price he paid? Well, he had to become human to pay it. The price was his own blood. The God of the universe was willing to go that far to free us from having to take orders to our urges, from our urges anymore. And that's why it's so egregious that some Christian pastors and leaders today treat same-sex attracted Christians as though they're animals who can't be expected to control their urges. You've heard the argument made by Christians. Well, we can't call it sin for two committed men or two committed women to have sex with each other. What are they supposed to do, just never have sex with anyone? That's unrealistic. Why are we treating our sisters and brothers as though they're helplessly destined to be enslaved by their urges? Many, many thousands of Christian men and women today, married and unmarried, same-sex attracted and opposite-sex attracted, are experiencing mastery over their urges by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's hard when your spouse gets paralyzed and for all intents and purposes, you just became involuntarily celibate. It's hard when you turn 40 and God still hasn't brought you a spouse, and so you are expected by God to be celibate. It's hard when you've prayed to be attracted to just one member of the opposite sex, so that you can get married and have a family of your own, but you've only ever been attracted to members of the same sex. Not giving in to our urges is hard. But if Christ's blood isn't powerful enough to free us from slavery to our urges, then why are we wasting our time doing all this on Sunday morning? No, every Christian has a story to tell about how we were enslaved to our urges of some sort until God bought bought us at a price. But ever since the day he made that purchase, we are no longer our own. I don't belong to me. My sexuality isn't my sexuality at all. My body belongs to another. He calls the shots. And my aim now is to glorify him, right? To live in such a way that my whole life, including the use of my body, testifies to the fact that God is better than any of my urges. And that's our big idea. It's just taken pretty much verbatim from this last verse. Because we are not our own, let's glorify God with our bodies. Because we are not our own, let's glorify God with our bodies. As it turns out, uh, my body, my choice, can't be the rallying cry of the Christian. Whether in the context of the abortion debate or the mask or vaccine debate. Right, Foundational to the, foundational to the Christian life is the conviction that our bodies aren't our own, but belong to God. And as such, God is the one who calls the shots regarding what we do with our bodies. The follower of Jesus will say, Here, God, when it comes to my sexuality, you take the pen, you write my story. It's not mine to write. And of course, none of us has done that perfectly. Even the couple here this morning, maybe, who were both virgins on their wedding night, and have never cheated on each other, none of us is sexually pure. Do you know that? Jesus said that if anyone thinks a lustful thought, they're guilty of sexual sin before God. So we are all sexual sinners in this room. And by the way, even so many of the times that you and I have followed the rules in the area of sexuality weren't actually motivated by deep conviction that we belong to God, they are motivated by a I belong to myself mindset, I don't wanna get an STD or be hurt or be thought of in a negative light. Even so much of our good in the area of sexuality turns out to be filthy rags. And that's why I think it's not a coincidence that Paul puts the gospel of Jesus' death and resurrection in all three parts of the text we read today. Did you notice that as we were reading? In section one, it was here in verse 11, right? He doesn't say, hey, guys, you used to be slaves to your urges, but now you've turned a corner. Instead, he says, you used to be slaves to these urges, but you were washed, sanctified, justified. See the difference? The washing that we experienced wasn't self-serve. The sanctifying, the justifying we experienced wasn't something that we could pull off on our own willpower. Those things can only be done to us, from outside of us. Right? Same with our being raised from the dead. In verse 14, this is in section two, right? The prerequisite for being raised from the dead is, in the first place, to be dead, Right? So where did we get the idea that us as corpses, which is who we are, could willpower our way toward following God's prescription for our lives? We couldn't. We can't. No, we needed him to rescue us, to breathe new life into our lungs, and to empower us to follow his ways. That's what he did for us. It's the only reason we can live differently than we we used to live. In section 3, he said you're bought at a price, right? We had been enslaved to this cruel master called sin with no means to escape, no matter how good our intentions, no matter how clever our strategies Then here our Lord shows up in the slave market to pay the price, to purchase us for himself, to set us free. Why would we go back to living like slaves again? We covered a lot of ground in this passage. I imagine we all may have some work to do with God right now in light of the scripture text that we walked through. For that reason, we did move this sermon up in the service so that we could have a little bit longer time after sermon of response and song and prayer. So we don't just rush out of here. So let me pray. And then we'll respond uh, by doing some more singing and praying. Lord, we are not our own. Sometimes even saying those words is is hard to say because we want to hold on to aspects of our own identity. We want to grip tightly to parts of our lives that we want to keep control over and not give over to you. But God, we remember what it was like when we were enslaved to our urges, it wasn't good. We don't wanna go back to that place again. And so those last remaining vestiges of our hearts that still don't wanna surrender to you, that still wanna hold aspects of our identity and behavior uh, for our own control, please loosen that grip this morning. Even in the remaining time that we have here, help us to surrender to you fully uh, in such a way that we can give glory to you, to a watching world, by testifying with our lives and with our bodies that you are better than any of our urges. In Jesus' name, amen.